conscious of worshiping you. And Lord, may we also now, as we open your word into another church, to the fourth of our churches that we were, or third of our churches that we're looking at, Lord, I pray that our hearts wouldn't, again, just take it lightly and say, oh, compromise, that's not me. But may we look in subtle areas, may we look into the depths of our heart and listen to the voice of your spirit, pointing gently and lovingly to an area that will help us walk more with you. And so, Lord, as we study Pergamos, may our hearts be open to how it applies to us and not just think of it as, oh, those people in some other church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to do a little audience participation exercise here. We'll see how this goes. I haven't done this with you before. Um, But let me just give you a little word association, and you tell me what comes to mind when you hear the word compromise. So so this would mean you say to me a word back, not that you stare at me and say, I'm not talking. Compromise. Oh, surrender. Working together. That's a good thing, right? Harmony. Wow, you guys are looking at the positive side of this. See, weak. Okay, Ginger, just speak for yourself. No, that's good. (laughs) Sacrifice. Dilution. Dilution. Blending. We're going to have some of that in Pergamos or... Uh, For those of you who didn't hear that, bipartisan. (laughs) To which we can say, if only. Warning. Warning. Spineless. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Jim. Marriage. Marriage. (laughs) So when you, when we're going to be looking at Pergamos, or in your Bible it might say Pergamum. Either one was, uh, was dependent on how they looked at the Greek word for the name, so they're the same thing, so don't, don't think they're two different towns next to each other. When you hear the word compromise and you think of the church as a whole, what comes to mind? So I say the American church is filled with compromise. Are you thinking surrender and blending and getting along and harmony and diversification? diversification? Is that okay? Hmm? Tolerant. See, you know, again, okay. So, Kathy White. Sloppy doctrine. Worldliness. You know, when I first became a Christian in the 70s, and the, that word ecumenical was like a swear word, because it meant Jesus is no longer God, he didn't die for our sins, and so we are going to be so broad that we hit, try to hit everything, we hit nothing. 
So we're going to be looking at the word compromise in association with the church in Pergamos or Pergamum, and it's not going to be a positive spin on the word. Uh, having done a lot of premarital counseling, one of the choices on conflict resolution style is compromise. And, you know, just, uh, this is sort of, this is no extra charge. has nothing to do with the sermon. But it wasn't even in that context always a good thing because what we would say is when you compromise, so often you feel like you gave up more than you received. And what you're really looking to do is resolve. Well, the church wasn't trying to resolve a whole lot at this point, but we'll get to that. So we'll start with a story. A man, maybe it could have even been this week, watched a fierce storm out his front window in the house he grew up in, and suddenly a great gust of wind toppled this big tree in his front yard. Now this tree had survived many decades, but the big gust of wind and over it came. Saw some of those trees around here a few weeks ago, right? And so he went outside after the storm and he looked and saw that the storm was not the only reason this tree fell because on the inside he saw that there were some rotten spots in the core of the tree inside, in the trunk. And he remembered when he was a little boy and that tree was really small as a little sapling that he had taken out his hatchet as us boys were prone to do and he kind of, you know, gashed the tree and so over time, water and disease had made its way, you know, in from those slices which kept, you know, going on out. And the tree was weakened at that, but it took a storm to reveal that. And so one day, when the right storm came and the amount of rottenness in the inside had consumed enough of the trunk, over the tree fell. That is a metaphor for what the church at Pergamos was struggling with. In our lives, the devil will try to find an opening to seep in, to weaken our foundation. And while we're resisting him over here in this area, he sneaks in over here in a different area. And so Pergamos, the compromising church, had grown. They had withstood fierce and severe storms. But now compromise is threatening to destroy them from within, from the inside out. And so let's start and look at that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And let me ask you as we open up, how do we avoid drifting into compromise? So Revelation 2, 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, what is Pergamos? Where is that? We're kind of, if you look at the, the map that we'll put up here, we're kind of like working in a, a counter or clockwise circle, right? We started with Ephesus, Smyrna, which is modern day Izmir, and Pergamos is not that much far north. It's just north of modern day Izmir, so it was north of Smyrna. And Pergamos was actually uh, a very important city in that day. It was an official administrative capital for Asia Minor. So the whole, that whole thing that you see in modern day Turkey, it was the Roman official administrative capital. It had a university, one of the world's largest libraries with 200,000 manuscripts. But Pergamos also hosted one of the first temples to Caesar. It had a huge temple 
to Zeus on top of a hill overlooking the city. So let's look at the ruins of what it looks like now today. It was one of the more spectacular places in the, of the seven churches, not quite as big as Ephesus, but notice uh, that huge amphitheater and all those different things. And so on, on this hill, like we're standing at a hill, and there were lots of temples, so it's kind of in a bowl, and there was a temple to Zeus, and then there was also a third deity that they worshipped, because back then... The problem wasn't that you only had to worship one deity, like say Caesar is Lord. You can have whatever deities you wanted. You just had to say Caesar is Lord, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, and so when Christians come along and say, no, I won't say there are other deities, that's where the trouble came. And so this was a very uh, important city with, with worship. Uh, Caesar there, Zeus, Asclepius was the other one on the hill ringing around. Um, he was a, a leading school of healing. And so he was a god in the Greek pantheon of gods. And so his symbol, you might recognize even today a variation. It's the serpent twisted on a staff. And so the god Asclepius was associated with healing. And so people would come from all over to be healed and to learn how to heal. And so the healing temple, and there was a medical school there, and it generated a lot of business. It generated uh, income. And so, of course, whenever money's involved uh, and you start messing with it, people get mad at you, right? And so the Christians also found trouble there. And so in verse 12, going back to our passage Jesus used the descriptive phrase from Revelation 1. Remember how he said a lot of those descriptions he's going to weave into these seven churches. Well, this one is the double-edged sword of his mouth, the sharp double-edged sword. And again, remember, that's the long sword of judgment, not the little short sword that might be a little longer than a dagger. The big one, they, you go and fight, and it, the sword of judgment, not just the sword of discernment. Only God decides the fate of each person. The long sword of judgment, whether you're righteous or wicked, God will be the one who decides that. No one else, not your friends, not your school or your business or your political party, nobody's going to judge you in the end but God. Working through Revelation 2 on to verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So you get an idea that Satan had a rather prominent presence in this administrative capital of Rome. And so these the Satan has his throne. So you have kind of a choice of one or more deities that maybe does that refer to Caesar as the emperor because it's the administrative capital of Rome. Is this Zeus and his, his uh, throne-like appearance. So if we look at this, this is the, they excavated this temple of Zeus. This is now in Berlin. Um, so what, where it got it from Pergamos, they took it to Berlin. It kind of looks a bit like a throne. It's great, big, and huge. Imagine how that looked on, the, on that hillside looking down, what you saw back in that ruins picture. So that could be part of the Saint, Satan's throne, or it could be Asclepius, because, you know, when health is involved, people get very interested, and so they come and worship and, 
try to improve their health and worship this God and thinking that will do it. So Satan, the idea isn't which one of the three or was it all three. It's like, it doesn't matter. Satan doesn't care which one you go, just so you go to one of them and not God. Anyone or anything that takes you away from God, Satan's all for that. And you can do it in subtle ways or overt ways. What they were up against was a city surrounded by all these deities, by all this pressure, and this is Satan was alive and well and prowling around in their city and pressuring. And we know that because we have this guy named Antipas that's going to come in to the, into the foray. But let me ask you first, do you believe that you are in a spiritual battle? If Satan had his throne using those different idols, do you believe that every day of your life that Satan or his minions, his demonic Assistance? Do they come after you? Do you believe that? Or is that just for people who are really bad? They, they, they leave you alone. But wouldn't it make sense that the better and closer you walk with Jesus, the more Satan would be after you? And somebody whose life is all messed up, they're already kind of over in their own lifestyle. Why would Satan bother with them? They're gone. He's going to focus on you. He's interested in you. And if he can't get you in the big ways, he's going to look for you in the little ways, and that's what we're going to talk about, that little ways that will set up maybe the big ways someday. But who is this Antipas guy? If we're in a spiritual battle, if Satan and his hordes of evil are after us, church tradition says that Antipas was brought before a statue of Caesar and was told to swear that Caesar is Lord. Now remember, Christians... If they say Jesus is Lord, you can't say Caesar is Lord. You can't have both, but that is going to be the problem. But Antipas stood, and he said, no, only Jesus is Lord. And so the magistrate said to him, Antipas, don't you know the whole world is against you? This cult of Christianity? And Antipas's response was that Antipas is against the whole world. His name, ironically, or not so ironically, in Greek means against all. Antipas or pan is the Greek word for all. So Antipas' name, he lived up to his name. So they martyred him. Not an easy way. They put him inside a bronze bowl and they heated the bowl and just basically baked him alive. And so Antipas gave his life For his faith. And so Jesus commends the church and says, You persevered. You remained true. You did not renounce your faith. And just getting put inside a big bronze bowl isn't a very pleasant thought. You would think a bunch of people would have said, This is not for me. But they didn't do that. They didn't say, Too dangerous. Too hard. I don't want to have to be martyred like that. That would hurt too much. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. This is not what happened. And so first point on your outline, to avoid compromise, hold firmly to your beliefs because this is what the good thing in the church of Pergamum or Pergamos, they held to their beliefs. Antipas was was an example of someone even when he was martyred in a very horrible way, he held to his beliefs. So let me ask you, You probably won't get put inside of a bronze bowl. But how do you respond to spiritual challenges? How do you deal with neighbors 
or working colleagues or classmates who sneer at your convictions, your pressure. It might not be, you know, you're going to lose your job, but maybe you lose some social standing. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe people don't want to be asking you to come over to their house when they have the big Super Bowl party and the the adult beverages are flowing liberally and you don't want to be a part of that and they snub you. You see, Satan wants to intimidate you into giving up. He wants you to say, you know, when I look at the world, what can we do? There's nothing to be done. I look at my country, especially right now, it's just all polarized. Everybody hates everybody. It's discouraging. Where is God? There's just no hope. I look at my community and I just see all the people who don't go to church and live life for themselves. I look at my church and think, "There's how do you fix all this stuff? I look at my own life and maybe you're saying, how do I even fix my own life? Well, Satan's glad to hear you give up. He's glad to see you be passive and not try and not confront your own issues or get involved in the things around you that stand up for your faith. Instead, you have a choice. You can be intimidated by all of that, or you can say, I'm going to stand on my beliefs, and I believe God is sovereign. I believe he is at work in the world, and even if I can't see the world or our country or even our community, even in the church if you're discouraged or your own life, will you persevere because you believe God is good all the time, even when you can't see it? Do you believe that? Well, verse 14, those are the good things Pergamos had done that Ephesus did. They had their faith. They were there. I'm sorry, not Ephesus, but Smyrna. Smyrna was intimidated by all this stuff going on, and Pergamum was not. They stood up. It says, nevertheless, in verse 14, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now that dual threat of idols and immorality is going to appear in Thyatira next week. But though the church at Pergamum had not renounced Jesus, they had internal problems. They were like the rotten tree trunk. Some were engaging in the compromise of Balaam. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament, Numbers 22, 23 through 25? Anybody remember Balaam? There's a little bit of a donkey there we can, that talked, remember that? Well, what Balaam was doing was, um, he was hired by Balak, who was a Moabite king, and, uh, and they hired Balaam to come and curse Israel. And do you remember Balaam, went to the hillside, he was going to curse them, and God said, you can't. Of course, he had to have a donkey talk to him to tell him all that. But he couldn't do it. And then he took him to another hill, and he said, okay, let's try the the rear part. And, And this happened several times, and Balaam just couldn't do it, and he would end up blessing them instead. And Balak was so like, I paid you big money for this. Why can't you do this? Do you know what Balaam did, though? I mean, why he's in this passage? He found a different way to bring down Israel. He said, go marry the Moabite women 
aren't they good looking? Just think of all that, that you're out here in this desert. Think of what it would be like to have a family farm nearby and all the stuff that could happen. But the problem when they would marry these foreign women and why that was such a big deal in the Old Testament not to intermarry was because these women would take their hearts away from God and they would start worshiping the Moabite gods. You know, those nice gods like Molech and Chemosh that did live infant sacrifices to their gods. I wonder why God destroyed the people in Canaan. What would you do if, you know, you saw babies not just being aborted, but they were one, two years old, and they were tortured as they were killed in fire? It's not a good scene. It was a horrible culture. But they would go and they would be involved in these abominations. And so they would start, they'd start marrying the Moabite or the other women. And so what the error of Balaam became is seducing people into idolatry and immorality. Jezebel next week is going to be the same thing. Those same double punch. Intermarry, worship the false gods, and so what the Balaam is all about is what can you do? Now, if I can't get you in the overt curse, I'm going to get you from the subtle compromise to drag you down in ways that, you know, you're out in the desert. You might, wouldn't it be nice to be married? And then they, they start sliding. They start compromising. And that's the problem that this church faces. They stood strong in persecution They didn't do so well in the subtle things. Verse 15. You also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, Jesus says. So, the social climate of Pergamos had that same pagan worship that was all over. There were festivals for these different gods, and in order to keep one standing Socially, in order to survive professionally, you had to participate in these different festivals because your job and your work were kind of dependent on these interactions. And so guess what went on in these festivals? All kinds of not good things. Something that would involve like drunkenness, sexual immorality, which was cultic prostitution. And the Nicolaitans, we mentioned them in Ephesus. They were this group that wanted to blend Christianity and culture with culture, and in particular, they think, at least their best guess, is that what they would say is, hey, you're not under the law anymore, so whatever you do, it's not really going to maybe hurt your soul so much. In fact, you know, God's a God of grace. He'll forgive you. So do whatever you want, be free, mix with the people, don't offend them, blend your culture, and if you happen to stray, you know, God is there to give you forgiveness. You confess your sins, and he he will forgive you for those sins. And so they perverted the freedom we have in Christ into making it a freedom to do whatever we want, all in the name of not offending society. Just do what it takes to make everybody around you not say bad things about you. Sound familiar? Feel any of that pressure in your life? So, unlike Ephesus, Ephesus they had resisted the Nicolaitans. Some in Pergamos had not. So there have been modern surveys, the one I remember most distinctly back in the 
right after Promise Keeper era in the 90s, about the year 2000-ish, Promise Keepers did the survey of like 66 major lifestyle areas and how were Christians different than non-Christians. And they found that many evangelicals were not much different than the world around them. The same incidences of immorality, unethical behavior, lying, divorce. So in the end, you can't have it both ways. You can't serve the world and try to make them happy and serve God. It just doesn't work. It's hard to do those at the same time. So Pergamos was a mixed church. So maybe part of what was going on, some of those people that stood strong for their faith also didn't compromise. But the problem was that they allowed the people who were compromising to taint the church. And as you can tell from what Jesus says, he doesn't want a mixed group where, wow, we believe in Jesus, we'll stand strong, but we'll just, whoever wants to compromise their life, we're not going to do much. We'll just stand by and watch. Because Jesus says, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He will forcefully apply the truth to their situation so that those spectacular ruins that you saw, just like almost every other church, that we're going to be studying, there's nothing there anymore. There's a little ver- village called Bergama, Pergamos, Bergama, kind of hear the, the root of that, but they're gone. There's no city. The center capital of Rome in that era to almost 2,000 years ago has disappeared. There's no, no church there. There's not even a city there anymore. It's just one of the more spectacular ruins. So number two, to avoid compromise, watch for subtle slipping. Watch for that subtle slipping. How will Satan work into the trunk of your life in the interior that over time will start to bring you down? One man recalls, he said, when I was young, I worked in a bookstore. And so there's a group of employees who were always unhappy about some little thing, he said. And so they would go on their breaks and they would complain about the boss. They would go out to lunch and, and, and they would talk, oh, how horrible the owner is. And then on their after work time, they would get together and just come up with this, all this list of all the things wrong with their bookstore. And he joined in, this guy says, I joined in with them. And so they came up after they had enough of the things they thought were so horrible. And they presented a list of demands to the manager of the bookstore and said, or else. And so the manager chose else (laughs) and fired them all, the whole lot of them. Must have been a big bookstore. But here's what the guy said. I never should have listened to those people. I was happy with my job until I started taking their poison. Now, we're not talking about idolatry here. We're not talking about sexual immorality. We're just talking about a complaining, critical spirit that finds something wrong with everything around you. And it eats away at their soul, and they lost their job. What cultural influences subtly seduce you? into compromise. You know, in order to grow in your love for God, we have to guard who and what we let influence our thoughts, don't we? We have to watch what we let in. And scripture tells us don't dwell on negative thoughts that don't reflect the heart of God. There's a lot of negativity out there. I've had friends who go, I can't watch the news anymore. It's just, 
it puts my mind into negative of a spot. And I'm not saying you can't watch news, so you have to decide, but if you walk away and you feel discouraged and want to give up, maybe God doesn't want you to take that in so much. But we all have, every culture has its issues. And we say, well, you know, we don't have idolatry there. We're not worshiping the God Asclepius to get healed. We go to a doctor and it's all very rational and it's fine. But what would be our vulnerability as a culture? Well, the rest of the world has an opinion about that. They see America worshiping the God, the idol of individualism. Everything is about me, my rights, who am I, how, what I do doesn't tie into the rest of the world. I make my own decisions. In Egypt, the, some of the people were stunned and said, so you chose your own wife and, and you didn't even have to get your parents' permission? Nope. Didn't even have to get her parents' permission. Or we wouldn't have been married, maybe. Her grandmother said, you know, you're not going to marry a pastor, or you don't ever marry a pastor. I chose my career. My, if I waited for my parents, they were outraged that I chose ministry because he said, that's well, so selfish. You are going to, like, all your wife and your kids will starve or they'll live on the edge of poverty. You're being unfair to them. So my parents didn't approve of my career choice at that time either. And where I lived, and so these are all part in a Muslim culture. You know, your family decides, helps you decide who you marry, what your career is going to be, and where you're going to live. You don't make those decisions on your own. Never even occurred to me. But in my individual culture, I make all those decisions. Probably most of you did too. And you didn't consult your family. Not saying that 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 was automatically wrong, but we're in a culture that the rest of the world sometimes finds puzzling how we live and do whatever we want. We're a culture of individuals. It's all about me and self. And can you see it in our culture, the self-centeredness? And do you think that having it all around you and me would pull us in in ways we don't even realize? We get sucked into that it's all about me idea and we don't even know it. We're frogs in a kettle, the temperature's going up, and we don't even know it. So let me ask you this morning, how might you be subtly compromising to become more and more self-centered? I know you're not doing the big nasty nine or the dirty dozen sins. Maybe you're getting pulled in and you don't even know that I live my life for me And I pray and I spend time with God, but maybe maybe I've been pulled into culture more than I ever want to know. So watch for subtle slipping to avoid compromise. Revelation 2, 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So there are rewards for being an overcomer. We've seen that word last week. Hidden manna symbolizes the inner strength from abiding in Jesus. So why do I say that? Well, if you looked at John chapter 6, verse 48, here's what Jesus said in one of his great I am statements. There are seven of them in John. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. 
But there is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. So in contrast to the feasts of Pergamos, where they got drunk and had ritual prostitutes running around, there's a hidden bread that comes from heaven. And no matter how attractive those worldly things might be, you have to ask yourself, where do I go to get my soul nourished? Because those things are not going to nourish your soul. Where do you go to get fed? The hidden manna, which is relationship with Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you go, well, I come here and I get fed. Well, great, thank you. But you realize that you're supposed to be feeding yourself in between, right? If this is the only feeding you get, let me beg you this week to start looking in the scripture and thinking about how it applies to your life. Don't just say, I'll go in between Sundays and that's how I sustain myself. You need to be spending time in the word. Not a guilt trip, it's spiritual nourishment. How will you get the hidden manna of relationship with Jesus if you don't read his love letter to you? So, hidden manna, where do you find feasting for your soul that's permanent and fulfilling? And then there's this stone idea. The overcomers will receive a white stone, and their commentators are kind of divided on, okay, so there was a white stone that, you know, this, this was your kind of entrance pass into a particular place. You had to show them your white stone. And so it was, you know, you see the application of entrance into heaven, white being a color of purity. Others said, no, it was a court of law, and you, you cast your guilty vote with a black stone, and your not guilty vote was white. You've heard that before, I'm sure. That's what the casting of lots was more about, was the white and black colored markers, not drawing short straws. Either way, it doesn't matter. They both come back to the idea that we're abiding with Jesus, whether it's entrance into heaven or proclaimed that you are not guilty, you are righteous. That white stone gives you a new identity in contrast to the identity the world gives you, which says you better be beautiful, you better be outgoing personality, you better have talent, you better have money. You come up with the list. We've seen that list ever since we went to school, right? We know the people that succeeded were the people with some of those outward skills, and it's usually the same as adult in adult world. Some of it changes up a little. But your identity becomes about what you do, which is why so many of us, when we retire, have a crisis. We have no identity anymore because our identity was what we did. And now what do I have? When I had my heart surgery and there were weeks, months really, I couldn't do anything. I went through an identity crisis. I felt like worthless. Who am I? What do I have to offer? I can hardly stay awake. I can't walk around because, you know, if I slip and fall, it'll cause trouble with where my chest got opened. And I had to come and decide, is my identity based on being a pastor and what I do, or is it based on my relationship with Jesus? Because this white stone is your picture of your identity. The name only you know means God has a special name and love for you. Old Testament talks about we're engraved on the palm of his hand, we're the apple of his eye. These things are saying your identity is in Jesus Christ. It's not in what the world thinks of you or what you think the world thinks of you. 
But when you compromise with the world, you do degrade that identity. You forget about, this is who Jesus says I am. And this is what the world says I am. And so back to that spiritual warfare throne of Satan. You want to know your number one best defense in spiritual warfare is your claim, the identity that Jesus Christ has given you. A loved daughter, a loved son, forgiven, cleansed, no matter what Satan tells you. Your new identity from Jesus defines who you are. That's your strongest thing to stand with. So number three, to avoid compromise, stand on God's identity. So we hold firmly to our beliefs. We're looking for subtle and not so subtle slipping. And we stand on our identity of who God said we are. No matter what you may feel like or what someone else is saying about you or what Satan whispers in your ear, your identity is a beloved child of God. So Jesus promises Pergamos rewards. What rewards most satisfy you? When you look at what do you, not just the manna of of nourishment, but where do you say this will reward me? Like at the end of your life or is there something deeper now in the spirit that you can live with and say there's a reward in my life now that will just lead me into heaven to satisfy your soul? What really satisfies your soul? The things of the world, those immediate rewards, or the spirit things where Jesus and the spirit live in your heart. Be honest with yourself. Think about that. The church at Pergamos stood strong against the intimidation, unlike Smyrna, where they were waffling and afraid and controlled by fear. Smyrna didn't had that problem, but Pergamos did not. But Pergamos fell to the enticement of compromise. They let people exist in their church and didn't challenge them or even in themselves. You know, a spiritual life doesn't crumble in a day. It begins with a little here, a little there, sort of like the gash in the trunk that be, of the tree that fell over, and a little bit more later, and then you find yourself drifting until it slides into a full compromise even without realizing it. One of my favorite songs is by a group called Casting Crowns, and, and they have a, a song called Slow Fade. Here's the, the chorus of it. I'll just play the chorus for you, if this works. When you give yourself away, it's a slow fade. When black and white turn to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid. It's a slow fade. At the end of the song, the, the video, by the way, it's, it's a soft rock song, so let me warn you. That's why I didn't play it, the whole thing for you. But it's a video that talks about a family falling apart, but it tells the story kind of in reverse. It's very powerful. The last chorus, it says that people don't crumble in a day. Daddies don't crumble in a day. Families don't crumble in a day. Because the theme of the video is about the husband has an affair. Anyway, I just encourage you to watch it. It it brought tears to my eyes. But it tells the truth that it's so often it's a slow fade. 
and we don't see the crumbling. We don't see what's going on inside when, like the tree, until the big storm of life comes and all of a sudden it pushes us over because we can't take it. You know, the devil has two favorite strategies to take you out of the game. One is intimidation. We saw that last week with Smyrna. And he has enticement, which we see here in Pergamos. He comes most often either as a roaring lion or an angel of light. So which strategy does Satan entice you with most easily? The overt intimidation, where you shrink back in fear, or do you find some subtle compromise starting to erode the depth of your faith? As God says, become an overcomer. Hold firmly to your beliefs. Don't give them up no matter what. Don't slip subtly or fall overtly and stand on that identity that Jesus Christ died to give you. And the white stone, he says, here's your name. Here's how I see you. And it's a name only for you, only known by you. So what what will we do? Will we take the message of Pergamos seriously in our life? Let's pray. Lord God, you, with your short sword of the spirit of the word, can go into our life and separate joint from marrow, see the depths of our heart, and take what looks to be a wonderful thing, a service that we do, a ministry that we're engaged in, but we've mixed our own flesh into it. Or, Lord, we've stood and we've stood strong. We know your word. But there's some other compromise where I try to take care of me and myself and I blast the people around me and think I'm righteous. In a marriage, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our own parents. So, Lord, show us just a few. Those are just a few ways that we subtly start compromising. We subtly start slipping because we want to be like the people around us or we want to worship at the altar of self. Show us, Lord, what areas of our life we're holding back. What areas are that little gash inside of our soul that needs to be healed before it spreads to the rest of our soul? Show us, Lord, so that we can begin to walk more and more each day with Jesus and not just coast along on the faith we started with. Show us, Lord, with your spirit. Help us to be courageous, as we said in Sunday school, to be doers of the word, not just hearers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.